lovely ladies, handsome gentlemen, good morning. You know, when you address a group at this time of the day, and most especially, it seems to me, on Saturday, uh, the audience looks like a posse. <laughs> but here we have nothing but smiling faces, for which I am uh, extremely grateful. My brothers and sisters, by the grace of God and his gift to me, the Blessed Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I am this morning a very grateful recovering alcoholic. My name is Alexis. Hi, Alexis. Hi, everybody. There's a story told about the fella who came out of the grave on Judgment Day. Gabriel sounded his horn and he came forth. And as he did, he glanced around and he read the stone. And on the stone it said, Loving son, faithful husband, devoted father. Hell, he said, I've been laying in the wrong hole. That is a little bit like the way I feel after listening to Dusty. I hardly recognize myself. I think all of us are nervous when we speak. Someone once said it's just God trying to shake the truth out of you. <laughs> but I think that we all are a little nervous. But if there is any place where nervousness is not called for, has no place at all, it's in AA or Al-Anon or Alateen. It's in our fellowship. The most affirming people on the face of God's earth are the people in our fellowship. When was the last time you went to a meeting and the leader said, I got two lousy speakers for you. <laughs> or even said, I got one lousy speaker and one good speaker. Everybody in the fellowship is a great speaker. Reminds me of the guy who cruised the cemetery and he read all the epitaphs. Then he asked his friend, he said, where the hell are they buried the sinners? <laughs> so I guess to a certain degree, you wonder where they bury the bum AA speakers. It is a great uh, privilege for me to come here this morning. I have a priest friend that I live with, except I left home early enough this morning that he wasn't up and around, see? But every time he sees me go out with my collar on, he says the same thing. Oh my God, he says, you're going out and tell the whole world you're a drunk again. <laughs> I think it's important to set a pattern so you know where I am coming from. I'm not going to boast about my drinking. Sometimes you, you go to an AA meeting, it's kind of, can you top this, you know? The first speaker says he drank a fifth. The other guy says he drank two fifths. So I, that is not in, in a boastful way that I am sharing with you. The reason I am here today is for myself primarily, to keep me uh, sober. That's why I go uh, to meetings. 
I've long, come, long ago come to the conclusion that other people simply do not understand why I continue to go to meetings. You don't drink anymore. Some of them forgot that I drank at all. Others never saw me drink. And for them, it's a, it's a mystery. Why do you keep going to these meetings? I share with you why I am here this morning and why I, I continue to go to these meetings. I think that's important for us. The highest faculties that God has given to us is our intellect and our free will. And I think that wherever possible, we should use those. It's not sufficient in my judgment simply to say, if you don't go to meetings, you get drunk. Then someone says, why? And you say, I don't know. That's just the way it is. There is a reason, and there is a reason, as I say, why I come here uh, to share with you my experience, my strength, and my hope. You know, even the most joyous events in our lives, weddings, first communions, bar mitzvah, whatever it might be, we try to preserve that joy. We use photographs, matchbooks, you know, Mary and Jack on it, swizzle sticks. We do everything we can to preserve that great moment of happiness, whatever it might have been. But you and I know that with the passage of time, even the happiest memories, the ones we are struggling to preserve, slip away from us. Finally, we don't remember who was at the wedding reception. And it wasn't because we were drinking. We just don't remember. Time. Time takes its toll. Gladys Knight and the Pips had a hit record several years ago called The Way We Were. And they said, it's the laughter we'll remember whenever we remember the way we were. Things too painful to remember, we simply chose to forget. Then they asked themselves, has time rewritten every line? You know, God has built into each one of us a forgetter. And that's a marvelous thing. That is a gift. It's a gift. If you or I could recall on a moment's notice the tragedies in our lives, we would be overwhelmed by them. We have all experienced physical pain, yet with all the effort that we make, we can't recall that. We know that it was unpleasant, it was not good, but we can't recall the pain. That's God's goodness. That's a healing. The death of a husband or a wife, a child, a parent, when we're going through this, we say, I will never get over this. Life is at an end for me now. But we know, with the passage of time, the healing takes place. And as I say, this is a marvelous gift for everybody, except those of us who are alkies. The minute we forget the reality of our drinking, then we are in very, very serious trouble. Very serious trouble. And so I keep coming to the meetings, and I keep speaking and I keep sharing in a conscious effort to keep alive the reality of my drinking. See, left to my own devices, my drinking could be a Manhattan on Christmas Eve. Nothing bad happened. Felt a warm glow, if you will, with my confers. That is not the reality of my drinking. My drinking is coming up New Hampshire Avenue in Silver Spring, three o'clock in the morning on all fours. And I've already lost the automobile. 
a taxi driver makes a U-turn and he picks me up. He takes me home. I always like to add he was a little surprised at where I lived. (laughs) But that, that is the reality of my drinking and that is what I have to keep alive. And so this morning I want to share with you my experience, my strength and my hope. I want to tell you a little bit about what I was like what happened what I'm like now that's what I'm supposed to do and in doing that as I say uh, I help myself if there's anybody out there who is new particularly AA for God's sake don't compare yourself don't compare yourself the only thing that all of us in AA have in common is trouble (laughs) we all drank differently different amounts different kinds of booze and for different lengths of time I am what a priest friend of mine calls a late bloomer and an early fader (laughs) 40 years old 17 years in religion before I picked up that that drink and my career like a star across the heavens seven years it lasted And I was as totally and as completely wiped out as if I'd been drinking for 47 years. So you don't want to compare yourself. That's not important. That's not important. Identify. Identify maybe with some of the things that I will share with you. The other thing which I believe is a great waste of time, a great waste of time, is trying to figure out why, why I drank. As my sponsor said to me one time, and I presented this to him. I was hoping he would tell me it was somebody else's fault. I don't know. Let's see. He said, when you find a man on the back of a Bengal tiger, he's holding on for dear life, but he's losing his grip. And he knows that when he falls off, he's going to get eaten by that tiger. He said, you don't ask him, how'd you get there? <laughs> You do what you can to help him. You do what you can. He said, supposing I tell you, you drank because your mother wore army shoes in the kitchen. (laughs) Now you know why you drank. Do you think you can drink safely now? (laughs) Let me tell you, he said, you can't. I'm reminded of a priest, little parish in Virginia. He had a fella in his, pro- in his parish who had a, a problem, huh? a drinking problem. The wife had come to see Father many times, and Father got a hold of this guy, Mike is by name, and talked to Mike. They never made any inroads at all, never. Mike was always very repentant, as we Alkies know how to be, uh, and he was going to do, di- but he never did any different, never did any different. Father used to get very annoyed with him. One day he's walking down the street, and who's coming at him but Mike, you know, weaving from side to side. And he straightens up and he says to him, Father, I want to ask you something. He said, what is it? He said, what causes shingles? (laughs) And the priest thought, I'll get him now. I'll scare the hell out of him. He said, shingles? I'll tell you what causes shingles. Drinking. (laughs) Sexual excess. (laughs) Laziness. Sloth. Laying around doing that. That's what causes shingles. Why do you ask? He said, well, he said, I just read in the paper where the bishop's got a bad case of shingles. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
So don't waste your time trying to find out why you drank. <laughs> Again, for the sake of those who can identify, let me share with you my background. First of all, I think I was born with glasses, you know? As a kid, I remember my mother putting me out the door and giving me a, a pat on the tush and say, don't break your glasses, you know? Don't break your glasses. I always felt outside, always felt outside of things. To begin with, I hated sports, hated sports, and I found it very difficult to fit in with the, the kids on the block. I was always a shy person, always had feelings of inadequacy, always felt that everybody else had it together. Hell, I was 40, 47 when I came to the program, and I thought everybody had it all together except me, and that my job was not to let you find out I don't have it all together. But as I say in my youth, that was the way I was. I was extremely shy. God as I understand him, God as he was presented to me by my parents and by my church, and God as I found him, was always a very personal, very loving God. I have always had a real, a genuine relationship with God. Now sometimes it's been pretty lousy, but it's been a real relationship, a real relationship. And so in my youth, I felt a need or a desire to come closer to God. And being a Catholic, the, the obvious route was priesthood or religious life, something of that nature. And that's what I thought I was going to do. World War II came along, and that idea went to the back of my head. And instead, I went into the uh, service. I spent almost six years, five years, nine months, and ten days. <laughs> Remember it well in the service. Loved every minute of it. Booze was not a problem. It was not part of my life. It was no problem whatsoever. I was in the Navy, as I say, over five years, when I again felt this call from God uh, to come closer. And so I left the Navy, and I entered my uh, religious community. And that was in February of 1950. It's important that I stress to you that in the next 17 years, I developed an intimate, personal, deep, loving relationship with God. It was the natural consequence of the life that I was living. You know, in those days we prayed together seven times a day, publicly, in addition to our private prayer. Meditation, spiritual reading, all of these things that contributed to my becoming a good and a decent man. Now that is not pride. Humility does not consist in denying what we are, but rather in attributing to God, the source of all good, that which is good in us. For those of you who are sober alcoholics today, to deny that sobriety would be nonsense. To take credit for it would be greater nonsense. But to deny it would be nonsense. And so we cannot say that in humility we deny the truth. Humility is truth. And I say to you that I became a good and a decent man, consecrated to God. You love your husband, you love your wife, your children. My relationship with God was not unlike that. As I stand here before you, I share that with you. God was very real to me. And it's important that you understand that, because I want to show you where alcoholism brought me in the end. But that was the relationship. 
You know, at that time, in the Catholic Church, religious life was very, very structured. You know, we all got up at the same time. We, like, you know, cookies pressed out of a, with a cookie press. We're all the same. We dressed the same. We talked the same. We looked the same. We prayed the same. Everything the same. Someone was always at the top making all the decisions. You know, we will get up at 6 o'clock tomorrow. I remember we used to get up at 5.30. And one of the priests, always, he was always complaining about it. He said, hell, he said, the sinners aren't going to get up until 10. <laughs> what the hell are we going to do for four and a half hours? <clears throat> All of these things were decided for us. You know, looking back on it now, I see that my mother and father took care of me until I was about 18, and the Navy took care of me until I was about 23, and then my religious community took care of me until I was about 40, always making decisions for me. Well, after Vatican II, that all ended. Everyone was kind of on their own. I got a resentment against fat little Pope John. <laughs> Figured he's the one who screwed up my whole life, see? You gotta blame somebody, right? I didn't have a wife at hand. And so the structure was taken out of religious life. One of the things that happened was, was juridical. I could now hold office in my religious community that before, because of juridical legislation, wasn't possible. But now I could. They offered me the job. When I tell you what the job was, you'll, it'll answer your question about where did he get the money to drink, see? They made me treasurer general of the whole order. Now, I became a good and a decent man, but I didn't become perfect. <laughs> and while I had misgivings, apprehensions about this, taking on this job, I thought, I can handle it. I can handle it. And so I said, yes, I accept. You know, the minute I accepted, fears that I had not experienced since I was a child, fears, the fear of making a mistake, just descended on me. I was powerless. I was paralyzed. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't make any decisions. Couldn't do anything. In the beginning, I like to think of it in terms of the early months of my administration. I would say such things as, let us reflect upon this. To act in haste is to repent in leisure. And everyone nodded, you know. A guru. That's what I was, a guru. See? <coughs> well, after about six months, those cats wanted a little action, you know. I just was totally incapable of doing anything. See? Just paralyzed. I was afraid to make a mistake. See? <coughs> One night, I'm trying to condense this whole thing, but one night I went out to dinner with some business associates. I remember in that crowd was, was a lawyer and a real estate man, some others, I don't remember what it was. Now, I don't want you to think that I was perfectly naive, that I didn't know anything about booze. Obviously, I knew about it. I didn't drink, primarily because I just didn't think that it was in keeping with my lifestyle. But that night, the waitress came and she said, to the guy sitting next to me, would you have something? And he said he would have a Manhattan. Uh, then she asked me, what would you have? And I wanted to be just as, you know, sophisticated. I said, I think I'll have the same. She blew my mind when she said, straight up around the rocks. 
I said, I'll have it the way he's having it. Then. I want you to know that my life has not been the same since. Were it not for that Manhattan, I wouldn't be here with you today. I took that drink, and it went down, and I felt warm, and I felt comfortable, and I knew the whole world loves me, and I love the whole world, and everything is going to be all right. And that night, I made some decisions that up to that point, I was un incapable of, of doing. I made some decisions. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, we'd have been hiding this stuff. This is marvelous. This is the answer to all my prayers. This is the solution to all my problems. It was in a very short time to become my greatest problem. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells us that booze is cunning and it's baffling and it's powerful. It didn't kick me in the teeth the first time, or the first ten times. All this time I think that I'm using it. I'm using it. But it did. It gave me a certain freedom. Not the kind of freedom that I've gotten from the, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it gave me a certain amount of freedom. I made decisions and I did things. The progression of the disease of alcoholism is totally imperceptible to the sufferer. He doesn't see it at all. But just as surely as your fingernails are grown and the hair on your head is growing, the progression is there. And you look at it and you don't see it. Same as if I look at my fingernails today and look at them again tomorrow, they're looking different. But it began to get more and more cunning. I was drinking mostly in the evenings. Now I found out I still have to go to meetings at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. And at those meetings, at those council meetings, my palms are perspiring and there is a quiver in my voice. And I know that they hear that and they can detect that. And they're saying, he's not certain. He's not sure of himself. And so I thought, how about a little bourbon and a little ginger ale and a little Listerine, you know? And who's gonna be the wiser? And I did it and it worked and it was beautiful. When I would leave those meetings, they knew it had been laid on them by an expert. <laughs> that relationship with God, it began to deteriorate. See? Now, certainly not because I was drinking, you see. I just am busy now about a lot of things. I just don't have time to pray. And I just don't have time for uh, spiritual reading. See? I am now a big executive. A big drinking executive. See? <laughs> but of course, I didn't see that. See? And so that, that relationship began to uh, deteriorate. But as I say, it too was uh, imperceptible to me, uh, uh, to me. You know, I lived at that time with maybe 40 men who for the love of God loved me and I loved them for the same reason. They would never knowingly or deliberately cause me any pain or anxiety or anything that they cheer along. They were marvelous men and I loved them. When one day one of them said to me, don't you think you drink too much? Instant hate. <laughs> I made a list, a mental list, really two lists. Those in front of whom I would continue to drink and those in front of whom I would not drink. I'll be damned if I can't have a drink in my own house in comfort, then I just won't drink in front of you. Pretty soon we only had one list. Everybody was on my case. 
I remember one time a guy said to me, what do you got in that glass? I said, bourbon and, and ginger ale. Oh, he said, can't be much ginger ale, that's brown. <laughs> so I bought a green glass. at this point I was experiencing the routine problems of a problem drinker you know sick in the morning and hungover and gagging when you try to brush your teeth but these these were nothing compared to what I was about to experience see because I took that attitude got an attitude about people talking to me about my uh, drinking and so I said whether I said it specifically I don't know but this was the attitude I took I won't drink in front of you to hell with you I'll go out and so US one, the area between the University of Maryland and Tag's restaurant in Laurel, became my area of operation. And downtown at 9th and about F were G Streets. Somebody's looking for me. That was another area of my operation. See, I didn't I knew I wasn't going to meet anybody there who knew me. And so I would drink there. Let me tell you, I shouldn't have had any difficulty whatsoever with the second step, huh? but the sanity part of it. But I did. The things that began to happen to me, I began to lose automobiles, you know? Dented automobiles. See, we're not allowed to own our own automobiles. Forty guys in the house, six automobiles, you've got to sign out for it. So you'd say, I would sign the book, take the automobile, then someone would say, there's a big dent in the green car. I go tear the page out of the book. <laughs> then someone would say, somebody parked a blue car on the lawn. <laughs> go tear the page out of the book. I remember one morning the boss woke me up. He said, are you okay? I said, yeah, fine. He said, well, the police called, they found the car. Oh, I said, thank God. I didn't even know it was gone yet. <laughs> Many times I reported them stolen. It wasn't stolen, I just didn't know where I put it. But you can't admit that. You know, you can't say, I don't know where I left it. Or you can't say, I left it in front of the TikTok on uh, East West Highway. So I was always going down, claiming the car. And you know, we, we get to be crazy. Didn't want to lie. Didn't want to lie. I remember one time the policeman said to me, it's a hell of a day, he said, when they go right to the rectory and, and take the car. And I thought, I didn't say it, you said it. All I said was, sure is. And he, and he wrote that down. And I didn't have any problem swearing to the accuracy of that statement. You know, that's what he said. Insane things. Insane things. I remember on one occasion at the Holiday Inn on US 1, I smoked marijuana. Dear God, after having finished about a fifth, I thought I had a stroke. I sat in this big chair in the lobby for about three hours. My mind is racing. What am I going to say when they get here? They're going to get here, you know. 
Finally, some feeling came into my toes and into my ankles. And I managed to drag myself out into the car, made it home doing about five miles an hour, you know? The personality change that we hear about. I am a little guy, but I'm a smart little guy. I don't fight with big guys. Except when I'm drinking. <laughs> it's been many years now, but I still haven't been able to figure out whether I got bigger or they got smaller when I drank. But in any event, I got into fights. Fights on every parking lot on US-1, all over the place, you know. Got a broken arm in the last year of my drinking. You ever explain a broken arm when you go back home? What had actually happened was a guy hit me with a six-pack and broke my arm. We got into an argument. Are these things uh, uh, absolutely insane? Another occasion, I was talking to a guy in the bar and he was going to show me where there was another bar that was still open after hours. He had a gun. Crazy. Saturday night special. He left it in the glove compartment. Of my car. I told him, you're making me nervous. Put that in, in, and he did, in the glove compartment. I get home about four o'clock in the morning and I remember the gun. Now, what more am I going to do with this gun? I got a little bit of conscience left. I didn't want to just throw it out. I think some kid will pick it up and blow himself away. So I'm sitting up on New Hampshire Avenue again, middle of the, early in the morning, cleaning my fingerprints off it. Very, <laughs> having decided I'm going to put it in the mailbox. The mailman will find it. He'll know it. to the mailbox and I thought, oh, wait a minute, when I drop this in the mailbox, it might go off and blow me away. <laughs> so I went to the phone and I, I called the police. I remember he said to me, I don't suppose you want to give me your name. I said, indeed I don't. <laughs> but you'll find it under the mailbox at such and such a place. Going Insane, absolutely uh, insane uh, things happening to me. Now you must say to yourself, not yet anyhow, I had a friend of mine, what well, was near Georgia Avenue, I forget, and when they called to tell me that Ed had, you know, dropped dead, he was dead before he hit the floor. I said, where was he in his story? And he told me, I said, yeah, I remember that part, he, he didn't have much longer to go, he could have been finished up. I don't want that to happen to me at the, at this a particular moment. Now you must ask yourself, you know, didn't you try to do something about this uh, alcoholism? Of course I did. For any practicing alcoholic, to stop drinking is not a viable option. You don't think about that. See? The first thing you think about, any alcoholic who's worth his salt, says I gotta get into this control drinking, so I gotta control this thing. That's what I did. Just gonna drink Probably, I don't know what I said, but Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, or Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, or, you know. But it never worked for me, not even once. I, had, I poured myself a bourbon and ginger ale, and it got a little warm, so I put some more ice in. We put more ice in, you had to put more bourbon in. Then a little bit more ginger ale. Well, after a couple of hours, I went to bed that night, bombed out of my skull, convinced that it happened on one drink. <laughs> Control drinking never, never worked for me. I went to see the, the doctor, you know. I heard someone say the other day, the definition of alcoholism 
is when you drink more than your doctor. If you only drink as much, you're not an alcoholic. See? Well, I went to see my doctor and I explained to him, nowhere near the truth, nothing that I am saying here this morning is meant to be critical or uh, of uh, medical doctors or psychiatry. I don't, the big book tells us we can't do that, and I don't do that, but it may sometimes appear that way. <laughs> There's an alky telling it to you, right? I did, but I didn't. So I began to tell him about my drinking, see? And I never even got near the truth, but he looked up and he said, well, I will prescribe some antabuse for you. He told me what the antabuse would do and so on and so forth. And so that was okay with me. Well, the primary symptom of the disease of alcoholism is denial, coupled with gross dishonesty. The only way that you can stay in denial is to become the most dishonest person in the face of God's earth. That you lie to others, as my sponsor said to me, didn't touch it. <laughs> that you lie to others, he said, is understandable. Hand around a, uh, a glass. Maybe damaged is the reason for that. I don't know. I don't think it's you. Maybe I'm staying. Okay. No, I didn't, I didn't touch it. I understandable. Who wants to get preached at every time you put your hand around a glass? People ask you if you're drinking, you say, no, I'm not drinking. They catch you with you. They say, the first one today. They haven't seen you for a week. Say, funny, I should see you today. Last time I saw you, I was having a drink. First one since then. But he said, the greatest infidelity of all is that we lie to ourselves. The first thing that I convinced myself of after about three days on antabuse was, this antabuse has given me indigestion. It's keeping me awake at night, so I'm going to stop it because I stopped it and then I got drunk and then I got frightened all over again and I started taking the end abuse again and then I drank on the end abuse I share with you since getting sober I've had a heart attack the pain of the heart attack and the pain from the end abuse take the heart attack any day it was over in a couple of minutes with the end abuse for about the first hour I thought oh my god I'm going to die second hour I thought oh my god I'm not going to die <laughs> I would have had to feel better just to die, tell you the truth. <laughs> so the end abuse didn't work for me. Now I am a child of God. God should heal me through the church. I have taken more pledges than Bayer has aspirin. <laughs> Never kept any of them. See? Never kept any of them. The only thing I got out of them was another layer of guilt. The insanity with us alcoholics is that we do the same thing and expect different results. It's like walking up on the roof and stepping up and saying, this time I'm going to go up. <laughs> pledge after pledge. I went to see a psychiatrist. To me, that was the, the, the pits. I mean, that's the end. You know, you're a little nuts when you go see... Again, as I say, I'm not knocking psychiatry. Anyone who knows anything about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous knows we wouldn't be where we are today without knowledgeable psychiatrists. You've been to two AA meetings, you know more about alcoholism than that clown did. I picked a real boob. You know, people say that when we come to the fellowship of AA, one of the things that impressed them the most was the word we. Well, that didn't impress me a bit. 
Because when I went to see this shrink, he, that's what he said to me. He said, we are about to start on a new way of life. And I thought, well, now that's great. I'm not going to have to do it alone. But he said, you are a little nervous. And so I'm going to give you something to calm you down. See? And then we're going to talk about this thing. Well, he gave me something. And in about 20 minutes, that new way of life arrived. And I thought, I can live with this. This isn't too bad. I felt so good about that. On the way home, I had a couple of drinks. My blackouts before, my blackouts before had been for hours. Now they were for days. With the pills and the booze, you know, two, three days out of my life. So psychiatry it didn't work for me. The great dilemma, certainly in the last year of my drinking, was why has God done this to me? I offered myself to God at 23 years of age, gave him everything, and now he abandons me. That seems, you know, maybe illogical to you now, but it didn't seem illogical to me at the time. Why has God done this to me? You know what I was to find out? I know with absolute certainty that God wills my sobriety, the highest faculties that God has given me, as I said to you, intellect and free will. The first thing that goes out the window when I drink is intellect and free will. So I knew that God willed my sobriety, but he was really ticked at me. What I was to find out was that God did indeed rule my sobriety. But only, only through the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Only through the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is an old saying that God gives the very best gifts to those who leave the choice to him. If God had healed me in any of these ways, I would probably still have those deeper underlying problems that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about. But as it is, God gave me a gift. So great a gift that today, as God is my judge, I stand here before you and I tell you that I am not only glad and grateful to God that I'm a recovering alcoholic, I'm glad and grateful to God that I'm an alcoholic for the change that it has brought in my life. After having tried psychiatry and so forth, and at a time when loneliness and bitterness Hopelessness and helplessness just permeated my whole life. I attempted suicide. In AA, we hear that attempts at suicide are a cry for help. I don't dispute that for many. That was not the case with me. God be damned. God can go to hell. Or God will understand. I don't know. I just wanted out. I could not take it anymore. So I knowingly and I deliberately tried it. I came to in, in a Holy Cross hospital, lying up a storm, you know. You don't admit to something uh, like that. That is what alcoholism did to me. That is what alcoholism did to me. That relationship that I had with God was gone. Those of you who have been married to, to practicing alcoholics, you know. The joy in the marriage, uh, the joy, the ecstasy of that marriage day. And then to see it all go down the, the tubes. That's what it was for God in myself. That's what it was. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. God, as I understand him, might have addressed me 
as he did the hypocrites of his day 2,000 years ago when he said whited sepulchers outside painted white and inside filled with the bones of dead men that's the way that I felt that's what I felt you know I left Holy Cross Hospital I knew I would never drink again consumatum est it is finished never again never again four days later I'm back in the bag this is a threefold disease mental, spiritual and physical Holy Cross Hospital took care of the physical did nothing about the spiritual or the mental and I was doomed to drink again that was in February my drinking was to go on until that that November when I fought off Montgomery County and Prince George County emergency squads on Georgia Avenue when they tried to haul me off to the hospital again in a blackout don't remember any of us don't remember any of us it was at that time when I asked for help not that I believed that anyone was going to be able to help me with my drinking but I just had to show I'm, I've tried everything now I've tried everything I've tried everything I called a priest friend of mine Father John John is my sponsor now he's the associate director of an alcohol treatment facility in Cleveland in the face of this great track record the best I could say was John I think I might be having a problem with drinking <laughs> and so he came out to see me and it, Apparently we agreed I was having a problem, and so I went. We don't give up easy, we Alkies. I was angry and resentful. The man who brought me out there was a classmate of mine, Father Peter. And I thought, by damn, if I'm going to suffer, you are too. And so I embarrassed him all the way from Baltimore Airport to Hopkins Airport in, in Cleveland, demanding drinks, making a, just humiliated him, you know? I think if I'm going to have to suffer, you're going to do it too. See, that's how angry and resentful I was. When I arrived at that alcohol treatment facility, I was so drunk, they didn't even bother to take the vital statistics. They put me in bed. One of the things they asked me was, how tall are you? I said, 6'4". <laughs> the next day, nurses kept sticking their head in the room, looking around and walking out. See? Finally, after a while, woman came to me and she said are you Mr. Norton I said yeah she said you're supposed to be six foot four <laughs> said, why did I lie I don't know you know he asked me what time it was I would ask you why you know that's how dishonest uh, we become it is here that I want to tell you about the tremendous debt that I owe to Alanon it's a debt I'd never be able to pay. There are other dimensions to it, but time doesn't permit me to go into all the details. But this is the most important part. People from AA came and talked, and I was angry and I was resentful. I remember saying to Father John, John, I'm in the wrong place. You're talking about restoring me to sanity. I'm not insane. Oh, no, wait a minute, he said. That is a legal term, not a medical term. He said, that was a medical term. We would have you locked up. <laughs> Now, they had taken all my clothes away from me. They give you a pair of pajamas, one size, fits nobody. <laughs> they give you a robe with Rosary Hall written across the back of it, which everybody knows is the tank. <laughs> and a little pair of cotton slippers. Where the hell are you going to go dressed like that in November? <laughs> I thought, you know, John, you must think I'm pretty stupid. You don't have to lock the door. I'm not going to go anywhere like this. 
No, no, he said it, it is not a medical term. He said a medical term lock you up? It's a legal term. He said it means a lack of good judgment. He said, why don't you go back to your room and think about what you've been doing for the past year? He said, it might suggest a lack of good judgment. <laughs> One for John. After about two days, I came in and I said, John, I want to tell you something. I'm an alcoholic. And he laughed. He said, how? He said, I can teach a parrot to say that. <laughs> and he'll believe it more than you do. See? Then I got angry all over again. I wasn't hearing anything. The AA people come in and figured... And then, one day, a very lovely woman from Al-Anon came. She was not in the least bit judgmental. She didn't talk down to us. She was married to one of us. Not a brother, an Alkie. <laughs> and as I understand it, he was no prize. <laughs> but a lovely, lovely lady. Now what she said had no effect upon you at all, see? But it changed my whole life. She said, it is a beautiful and a courageous thing that you are doing. Trying to stop drinking. And I thought, um, it's a con. I'm doing a con job. But I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. All of us in AA, and I believe all of you in Alamon, and Alateen for that matter, have been touched by God to be able to overcome the denial to get enough honesty to be able to say even, I think I got a problem. You have to be touched by God. That is not a natural thing for an alcoholic to do. Or the spouse of an alcoholic, co-alcoholic, what do you want to call it? It is not the ordinary thing to do. It is not an unnatural thing. It is a supernatural thing. It is God's grace. That's all. I never knew who that woman was for about seven years, I guess, until I went back to Cleveland one time to speak and mentioned this and she came to see me. She changed my whole life. All of us are instruments in the hands of God. God did not use for my recovery an alcoholic. God used a woman from Alamon. She was the instrument. She was the willing instrument. If she hadn't been there, come to talk to us, I don't know where I'd be today. She was the willing instrument in the hand of God to bring about uh, my healing. But we, we alkies, we don't accept this thing, you know, uh, like being hit by lightning. When I was leaving that institution, my father John said to me, Alexis, he said, you're going to be okay? I said, John, I'm going to put the fight of my life. He said, fight hell, the war's over. You're lost. <laughs> you surrender. He said, I give you three things to do if you never want to come back to this institution again. He said, don't take that first drink. Go to AA and pray. He said, and do it in that order. And no substitutions. No church instead of AA. None of that stuff. No substitutions, like it says on the Denny's menu, you know? <laughs> Hamburger, peas, and mashed potatoes, no substitutes, please. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go to AA once a week. Very generous, right? In, in Virginia, because I don't go in Maryland. I live in Maryland. So. <laughs> and no collar. I'm not going to tell you anything about myself. No, no, no. I had some idea, it was like people who go to church think some magic happens if you just go to meetings. If you just go to meetings, then you're going to get a hemorrhoids from sitting on those cold chairs. 
It is the steps that are the program. But at the time, that was my attitude when I got on the plane to come back. See, I'd been in the hospital for a while now, and I didn't really feel the urge to drink or anything like that at all. Another thing I share with you was in that hospital, that I was reconciled to God as I understand him. Totally, completely, without reservation, instantly. God said, our brother who was dead has come back to life. Put a ring on his finger and a robe on him. You know, today I know, I knew it then, I just couldn't apply it to myself. One of the attributes of God is that God is changeless. If God has ever loved me, he's always loved me. God doesn't love me any more today as I stand here sharing with you my experience, strength, and hope. Not one bit more today than he did when I laid in my room and threw up all over myself, drunk. God has always loved me. And so my reconciliation with God was instantaneous. No question about it. But John put me on the plane, and I was feeling pretty comfortable until this real cute number came down with a push cart. And she said, cocktails? And I thought, oh my God, here I go again. But I did what he said. I didn't take that drink. When I got off the plane, though, I went to a meeting next door to where I live. Langley Park. Typical alky. Went all the way to Cleveland to find out I should have gone next door. See? Since that day, my commitment to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous has, has uh, grown, has grown. It is the most marvelous experience of my uh, whole life. I am more committed to AA today than I have, have ever been. And as I say, that, that uh, commitment uh, grows, that commitment grows. God has used this uh, fellowship to bring about my uh, healing. I think that in addition to our alcoholism, those of you who are alcoholics and those of you who are now and on, you and I have something else in common, and that is our inability, really, to adequately express what this blessed fellowship means to us. For me, it is summed up in the 113th Psalm. I will lift up the suffering from their misery, and I will cause them to walk in the company of princes, the princes of this earth. That is what God has done for me. He picked me up from my suffering and from my misery, and he put me in the midst of the finest people on the face of God's earth. That is the people in, in uh, AA. And the people in Alamon. And the people in Alateen. This was the instrument that God uh, chose uh, to use to bring about my healing. And it is because of this that I'm able to say to you, not only glad and grateful to God that I'm a recovering alcoholic, glad and grateful to God that I'm an alcoholic. John told me, he said, every night you must thank God for your sobriety. And every night you must ask him to keep you sober again the next day. And I started doing that the minute I came back to Washington, the minute I came into the program. But I don't think I was in the program a week when I, I expanded on that. And I have since then prayed every night for everyone who was in AA, for everyone who was in Al-Anon, for everyone who was in uh, Alateen. And so, tonight, when you uh, speak to God, as you understand him, say a prayer for Alexis, will you? God bless you all. Love you, here. Yeah?